Hi, this is Frank Turner, and you are lucky enough to be listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Colburn. And good Lord, you've made the right choice today. It's a killer show. Uh, and for my part, we're going to get into the weeds, but you should listen to my episode and all the others as well. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Culber. One of the things I'm excited to do each week on My Weekly Mixtape is speak with some of the incredible artists whose music has been featured on countless mixtapes and playlists of mine. And one of those artists just so happens to be my guest this evening. From his beginnings with the post-hardcore band Million Dead to his prolific solo career, I can't think of many playlists of mine that don't feature my guest this evening, and that is the amazing Frank Turner. Frank, thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape. Thank you for having me. I'm very flattered to be here, and that was a very lovely introduction. Thank you. Well, let's begin with the question I like to ask every guest on the show. Frank, what does the word mixtape mean to you personally? Uh, well, I mean, I am uh, ancient enough to have been very much a child of the mixtape era and, and very much mixed tapes, not mixed CDs. I mean, that came later to a degree, but um, mm-hmm. uh, I made a lot of mixtapes when I was a kid for friends, for myself, got given them. I did a fair amount of tape trading when I first got into punk rock. When I was about 15, I went to my first hardcore show and a guy called Lil, who runs a label called Household Name, sent me a mixtape after the show because I, I didn't really know what hardcore was and I just went and had my mind blown by agnostic front funnily enough um and uh Lil sent me a mixtape of UK hardcore bands and that was a very pivotal moment for me I made mixtapes for people I fancied when I was a kid I do I don't know if you know, are familiar with the song there's a band called As Friends Rust that had a song called the first song on the tape that you make her um which is a song about making a mixtape for somebody and putting a really obvious kind of romantic gesture song as the first song on it which was, I remember hearing that song, and this is now getting very meta, but just being kind of like, ah, yeah, Ugh, rumbles kind of thing. It was very on the nose. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you know, they mean, they, they, mean, they mean a lot to me, you know, they are, they're a big part of my uh, musical upbringing. Actually, funnily enough, when we made, I remember years ago, uh, 10 years ago, having a conversation with Rich Costi, the producer who I made Take Deck Heart with, which obviously is at least in part a reference to mixtapes. And um, we both agreed that a classic record should be at no longer than 45 minutes so that it fits on one side of a C90 cassette. All right. Yeah. Well, since this show is centered around the art of curating mixtapes, I've spent the last week putting together a Songs of Frank Turner mixtape to tie into <laughs> our discussion this evening. So these are songs that i feel both resonate with me personally as a fan as well as songs that i feel are important in telling the story of your music to someone who may not have heard it before so the first song that i've chosen is recovery from the album you just mentioned 2013's tape deck heart yeah when i introduce anyone to your music this is my immediate go-to song did you, as the writer, have any idea 10 years ago when you released Tape Deck Heart just how much this song would resonate with your fans? Uh, no, is the short answer to your question. And if I had even had an inkling of that, I probably would have done my best to put that out of my mind. I, I over the years, have learned that I think it's really important to just let a song be what it's going to be while you're writing and recording it. And if you spend too much time sort of thinking or even like aiming for some sort of like, 
grander design, then it tends to become sort of like noticeably a sats quite quickly in my experience. You know, it's like, ah, it starts getting tacky somehow. So, I mean, the recovery is a funny one for me. Like having said what I just said, I remember kind of like finishing I Still Believe, for example, which was before recovery was my most sort of well popular song, should we say. And I kind of like, you know, the first few times I played it live, it was like, oh yeah, this one's, this one's going to last and do well, you know, this will do. Recovery wasn't really like that. It felt like a very honest piece of writing. I was pleased with it when I wrote it. The arrangement for it came together pretty naturally with the Sleeping Souls. Almost, I don't have a vast memories of writing it because it just sort of came together pretty well and pretty easily. And I was pleased with it, you know what I mean? But it's, uh, it's, it, it's a, it was a pleasant surprise when it sort of became, and it remains probably my best known song. And it very briefly got to number one on the AAA slot on American radio, which back in 2013, 10 years ago, which was crazy thing uh, at the time. I always remember when the album, when the single, and then the, later the album first came out for the first stretch of that period of time, I was on tour in America, really doing the grunt work, you know? Um, but it had also been a successful on radio in the UK. And I sort of like knew this in a hypothetical way. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then we came, we flew back from the States and went straight into a UK tour. And um, I remember we were playing Master Academy, which is about two and a half thousand people, um, which is a solid number of people to play to. Yeah. And, um, and like, it was like, oh, well, it's the new single and it's probably not better than it. We've got to play it, but I'm not going to like make it like the last song of the night or whatever it's gonna let's bet it in probably about a third of the way into the set just to sort of you know ease people into the new material we'll we'll bookend it with two kind of popular songs from the previous records just to kind of make it easy for the crowd to get into it and we dropped that song and the entire room blew up everybody knew every single word to that song to the the new song and i i remember the the five of us standing on facing each other being like what the fuck is going on like not not in a bad way but it was like oh okay i see this is that was a new experience for me at the time and it, and it was uh so i'm very grateful to that song you know um that song uh you know paid for about half of my house <laughs> <laughs> well one of my favorite lyrics from the song is because i know you are a cynic but i think i can convince you yeah because broken people can get better if they really want to or at least that's what i have to tell myself if i'm hoping to survive lyrically this is a very inward facing reflective song which is almost sure. a complete 180 from the more bombastic outward facing tracks on england keep my bones was that something you were setting out to do with this album yeah and i mean to the to the extent that i uh pre-direct my writing which again is something i sort of try not to do too much of but the short answer question is yes like at that moment in my career, like Inky My Bones had been my most successful record yet. It had got me to like headlining my first arena show. It went gold. We'd done all this big stuff on a big record that was about big themes like national identity and death and mortality and all this sort of thing. And uh, like I'm I'm a reasonably kind of like um contrarian, stubborn, pig-headed person. And it was kind of like, well, you know, if everything's kind of doing that with my career, it would be interesting to write a record that did the opposite of what is expected now, you know, like the sort of obvious thing to me seemed to be to like write a Muse album or whatever, grand, yet grander themes and like all love and respect for Muse, but it was like, let's not do that. It was helped, of course, by the fact that I was going through a particularly unpleasant breakup at the time that was entirely of my own making and my own fault. Uh, and the kind of the, 
one of the themes of that album, Take Back Heart, was I thought it would be interesting to write a breakup record from the point of view of the perpetrator rather than the victim. I mean, it helped that that's what was happening at the time. But, you know, it was like I was making a mess of my life and it was kind of a series of unforced errors. And I, and I, and I had many thoughts about that, you know. So, yeah, so, but the, the, the idea of kind of making something small and inward facing at that moment in my career was kind of an interesting one to me. The other thing, incidentally, that you quoting that made me think I was like, I'm really, I'm really proud of technically speaking of the way that the song is so tightly structured lyrically. Like there's not a syllable out of place. And like, I do remember label people and producers sort of suggesting a maybe that could have one or two fewer syllables in. And I remember being in the studio and being like, no, I have written this song and it goes like this and every single one is in the right place. And like, there's bits of the song, which in first listen might sound rhythmically loose. And let me tell you, they really aren't. It's a very, very precise piece of writing from a rhythmic structural point of view. Awesome. Awesome. Well, moving on, the next song I'd like to bring up is The Next Storm from 2015's Positive Songs for Negative People. To me, this track truly defines the album's title. Was that <laughs> your intent? And what's the story behind this song lyrically? Uh, this, okay, the story behind, there's a good story behind the lyrics of this song. And the first thing to say is that, like, the, the first draft of this song, a very, very quiet vocals and guitar only, like, almost like Elliot Smithy type kind of vibe really really like recorded into a hotel answer phone at 3 a.m sort of just a tinny little acoustic guitar and a whispered voice and uh my bass player tarrant was like this is a good song and we should try playing it with the full band and i was like no and then i was like okay maybe we'll give it a try and then pretty much the first run through i just sort of showed everyone the chords and was like let's play it like then lizzie was what i said and then we ran it through and it was like bang and it was pretty much as it is now but uh lyrically i had this image in my head when i was writing the words of this song. Some songs I write come quickly, some come slowly. This one came slowly. I remember kind of dragging this song out of myself line by line. But I had this image in my mind of The Wizard of Oz. And I was absolutely convinced there was a scene at the end of The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy wakes up in Kansas and then tidies up with her family after the tornado. And that was kind of what was on my mind. And I wrote the song and recorded the song and recorded a video for it and released it as a single and started doing press for it. And, or, you know, which is a long process and mentioned this and pretty much the first interview I said this to is like that scene totally isn't in that book. <laughs> um, and I, I was like, what? And, and I hadn't thought at any point to check. And, uh, and there is no scene like that. And that's all. I've completely fabricated it. Somebody later pointed out that a film I'm reasonably sure I hadn't seen, which I think is called Wiz, which starred Michael Jackson, which is sort of a sequel to, to Wiz Wars, does have that scene in it kind of at the beginning. And I don't know, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen that film. And I'm slightly kind of not going to touch the Michael Jackson thing with a barge pole these days. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a strange thing. I've sort of fabricated this idea in my head. I mean, it's still, you know, it's not like integral to the song that that scene exists. And so... Maybe it's more of a piece of fiction than I'd imagined it to be. But yeah, it is that idea. I mean, I, I do remember sometimes album titles come at the beginning of, the, of writing a process, sometimes right at the end, sometimes halfway through. In this instance, I had the album title before I had any songs. It was a thing I said to a friend of mine over dinner one night. I was like, that's what I'm trying to do with my life is write positive songs for negative people. And then I went, holy shit, <laughs> you know, write that down. But I mean, I, I'm not sure so much that it was necessarily a case of like, once again, calculatedly writing towards that idea is more just that, that, is, that was a good description 
of where my head was at. And a lot of that record and this song was about kind of dealing with the kind of aftermath. I mean, Tape Heart was a big record. You know, we, we toured, we did an insane tour schedule on it. We sold a lot of records. We had big radio hits and stuff. And, you know, my personal life kind of fell apart during the writing of it. And uh, I was kind of like going crazy and having fun but also kind of like running myself ragged. And it was like, oh, let's try and kind of like reassemble something approaching a, a private life, I guess, was sort of the vibe. Well, something you mentioned at the beginning of your answer there, I do want to touch on, because you talked about just playing a guitar and just being you and a guitar. Mm. And something you've done on a lot of the deluxe editions of your albums is release solo acoustic versions or acoustical arrangements sure. of the songs. Because you play in both a full band as well as solo acoustic shows, is that kind of the mindset for including these alternate renditions? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. You know, like it's good. I could generally speaking, try and have an acoustic version of any song that I've done. There's one or two in the repertoire that doesn't quite work for. Um, Non-Servian being an obvious choice, but like, yep, yep. Um, you know, it's practical to have that. I also then do, generally speaking, subscribe to the idea that it's good. A song... It's a good song if it has a spine to it that you can strip everything else away and just have one person play it. I think that's a sign of a solid piece of writing. That's not to belittle arrangement as a concept and as a art form, but nevertheless, it's good to have that. But also, I mean, I don't know, I just as a fan, I like it, you know, like Billy Bragg quite often has record, you know, acoustic versions of his records. I know some people sort of prefer that version of me and I'm, a, I'm like to make people happy. So You're certainly is. doing that. And this next song is actually one that has helped me during a tough time. So I'd like to bring it up now. And that is from 2022's FTHC. I'm going to go with Haven't Been Doing So Well. As someone who's dealt with anxiety since childhood, this song really hit the nail on the head for me. And when you take lyrics like, and I keep it all in with my idiot grin and I'm doing my best, but there's very little left. So cut me some slack if I crawl back into my shell. I haven't been doing so well. And you layer them with this uplifting musical backdrop. Like you said, positive songs for negative people. To me, this song feels like an empowering, hey man, you're not alone with this. And that's that's powerful to me. Was that what you were going for with this track? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much. That's very kind words. Um, kind of, I mean, I think that one of the things I've learned over the years is that like, if you try and write a song that's kind of like gonna do X for, Y group of people or whatever, it just doesn't quite happen. It again, it sort of ends up being kind of fake to me. And like almost in some ways, like successful songwriting is a little bit like a magic eye picture. You have to see it by not quite seeing it, you know? So like, um, one of the things I sort of do is like, um, you, you have to kind of write for yourself and then just sort of cross your fingers and hope against hope that somebody else is going to care or it will resonate with them, whatever. If you, sit down to resonate with people you don't know it's gonna just sound creepy to me to my mind or at least <laughs> it's gonna sound like a marketing department you know and like which is not what people want to hear um so you know i guess like the with, well, some of the things with that song first of all like you know i i have been engaging with therapy for my mental health more in the last few years than i well i mean i hadn't at all until i got some help for a substance abuse issue and it, you know, which I'm pleased to say is currently in my rearview mirror, which is excellent news. Uh, you'll be staggered to discover that, that we sort of came across the idea that maybe all of that was more of a symptom than anything else. And that there was some other shit to deal with underneath. So, <laughs> yeah. so on we, on we go, but like I had this kind of breakthrough moment in 
uh, probably 2020 or 2021 when I was talking to my therapist and describing these kind of situations that I have and that I had for a long time, but they were sort of like slightly overshadowed by the kind of chemical after effects of kind of taking a lot of drugs. And I was sort of explaining this and saying, I was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And my therapist was like, well, I mean, that's an anxiety attack. And I was like, huh? And she was like, I mean, that's almost like the most textbook, tediously average description of an anxiety attack I've ever heard anyone give me. And it was just like, is it? And she said, yeah, that's what that is. And obviously I've heard people use that expression and I have friends who have dealt with that at great length and all the rest. And I had just never, ever, it never crossed my mind to point that word, that phrase in, in my own direction before. And it was so empowering, liberating, whatever word you want to use to kind of go, ha, huh, is that what that is? Okay. And that doesn't solve the problem. Fucking hell. Like it's still a part of my life, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, you can begin to engage with, with tool sets to deal with that kind of thing. The, the other, and then the other thing with that song, that, that was a song that came quickly, um, because I sort of, I had, okay. So brief aside, there's this thing, every like record label dude in the world is haunted by the story of the song Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen. The story goes, he'd finished the album. The label said, can you write one more single? And he was just like, God damn it. And sat down and wrote that song in like 45 minutes. And it was the hit for the record. Um, you know, they said, they said, apparently the John Lando said, John, we need a spark to light a fire dancing in the dark. So there you go. <laughs> um, and like the problem with that is that every label guy, you put, you, you turn in an album and they go, Hey, you could just write one more song because it might be dancing in the dark. And it's fucking annoying because you spent two years <laughs> working on the record and you're like, you're just saying that because of the fucking Springsteen story. Anyway, I had pretty much had that with the record. They were like, ah, I could do with like another song to just sort of, and I was like, fucking knew you were going to say that you assholes so i sat down and and kind of i had some musically some bits and bobs lying around but i also had this line in my notebook that had been around for ages and this is often how songwriting works for me i keep a notepad i keep notes on my phone whatever i remember being on the underground in london once years ago and just sort of like feeling really kind of run down and worn out because of I think I'd like done a bunch of shows, but also had been sort of music industry socializing, which is quite often quite powder fueled, should we say, and all the rest. And just feeling like I couldn't really hack it. And just saying to myself, like, I wonder, you know, I've got the sneaking suspicion that I might not be cut out the kind to be the kind of person that I'm expected to be physically, mentally, however you want to put it. And I remember just going, hmm, there's something there and writing that down. So now fast forward to 2021 or whenever it was, and the label going, write another song. And I was like, ah. Oh, fuck you guys and so you flick through the notepad and that one jumped out and then it kind of basically sat down and wrote that song kind of angrily but you know often good songwriting is just it's nakedly honest and it's just kind of like this is how i'm feeling and that's where that song kind of came from and it kind of worked which is so annoying because it means that the guys from record label were right and it's just like <laughs> bastards I'm, I'm sorry to give them the uh <laughs> the, the plus one on that because i absolutely love the track well you know what so, so do i so you know i'm gonna take my oil on it but still god damn it hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. (laughs) Well, following that one up is a song that follows kind of lyrically in the same vibe but is a completely on the other end of the spectrum and that is don't worry the opening track from 2018's be more kind Mm. this song peels back the heft and dials in almost an acoustic americana vibe for lack of a better word and really shows the breadth of the music in your catalog for Mm -hmm. your albums does the track by track sequencing and album dynamics come into play while you're writing and recording or do you look at that final batch of songs and then arrange them to tell the album's overall story um i would prefer it if the answer was option b but there's a little bit of option a in there you know like for example i'm working on a new record right now and i've got a pile of songs going on but there is this one song and i'm like that is so the first track on the next record like (laughs) And the thing is, I'm not going to like commit to that it, like irrevocably because you just don't until the whole thing's finished. And there is a wonderful moment in the sequencing of a record, which is a little bit like making a mixtape. And quite often what I'll do to sequence a record, you do it with post-it notes. And each post-it note, you write the title, but you kind of write other details on it, like what key it's in and like whether it's kind of up-tempo or down-tempo or thematically what it's about, whatever you want. And then you do two lists because you've got A and B side of a vinyl, which I still very much believe in, you know, and you start swapping them around and it's kind of almost like, it's like whack-a-mole or like magnets or whatever you like. If you, well, if I put that one there, then that one can't go there, which has to go over there. If that one's there and that one has to go somewhere else. And it, it's kind of fun, you know, you sort of, and then you make like four different versions and you drive around your car listening to them or whatever. And then you set the whole thing on fire and go back to where you started or whatever it is. Um, so there's a degree of that. I mean, don't worry, it was kind of a, interesting song we've actually weirdly enough revived that song on this tour that we're on right now for the first time in whatever that is five years six years even and um 
uh, I was really, when we were making that record, Be More Kind, I was, I, I had some kind of slightly kind of left field musical obsessions going on. And one of which was kind of working with more kind of like programmed sequencing kind of instruments, which we did on that record. Not so much on this song. I was also terminally obsessed with Bill Withers at the time, uh-huh. of whom I'm a huge fan. And, the, and, and, and then I guess in a way sort of more broadly kind of Motown, but I was, I was on this trip of like simplicity. And like, Don't Worry is both kind of musically and lyrically and, and in terms of its vocabulary and, and all the rest is about as simple as a, I can personally make a song. And I, and, and I think that in many ways, writing simple songs is a lot harder than writing complicated songs, um, stripping it all away. And I've always loved Weezer, particularly early Weezer, I find hugely inspirational because it's just, there's nothing there. The drums are just kick, snare, kick, snare. Fuck you, Dylan Driscoll plans. You know what I mean? It's like, um, and there's, and, and it's like, once you're that kind of naked, it's either a good song or a bad song. You know, I, I, I should add that I love Dylan Driscoll plan, but like at a certain point, if a song qualifies as a Dylan Driscoll plan, it just sort of is, do you know what I mean? It's quite hard to sort of parse whether or not it's like a good Dylan Driscoll plan or a bad Dylan Driscoll plan. It's 4,000 miles an hour. It's in 13, eight, yep. like, okay. Um, whereas. You know, if you play just a vocal and a guitar or just with simple drums or whatever it is, there's time for everybody, including the audience, to sort of pause, is this good or bad? And there's something that's scary about that to me. Again, no disrespect to the escape band. I do love that band. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, so don't worry. It was just kind of like, it's just like, blah, blah. And with claps instead of snares and stuff, you know, and it was like, don't worry if you don't know what to do. It's, it's pretty naked and that's what i love about your music as a whole i'd like to go back a long time now and go back to 2008's love iron song and the song photosynthesis as well as you re-recorded it for 2017 songbook yeah lyrically and i won't sit down and i won't shut up and most of all i will never grow up 15 <laughs> years later have those lyrics taken on a new meaning for you <laughs> yeah i mean yes is the short answer and like I, i'm super proud of love iron song and you know it was the first record solo record i did that really like i felt like wow i'm a writer but uh i it is interesting to me in retrospect that i at age 25 i wrote quite a lot of songs about getting old it's just <laughs> 41 year old means like shut the fuck up man <laughs> like <laughs> um i think that um i'm 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 always kind of a relieved and B at pains to point out that in the ly- official lyric sheet for the album, the words grow up are in quote marks. And the reason for that is like, it's not actually, it, and it was never intended to be like a Peter Pan thing. It's a more, it was a song about kind of what societal expectations of growing up might constitute. Even having said that, I mean, like, you know, you kind of understand one becomes a bit a bit more forgiving as you get older of the choices that older people have made before you. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you stand in their shoes. And it's quite easy to be a teenager or someone in your early 20s being like, I'm never going to get a mortgage. And you're kind of like, well, <laughs> there might be reasons to do that, actually, as you get a little older. You know, it might be, a, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I hope that, um, I, I suppose that, like, looking back, I'm not going to change the song because, it is what it is and, I, and i'm proud of it and we play it every night and i, and I enjoy that but like i suppose there's the words give up possibly stand in a little better than grow up but uh at this point but i'm not going to actually actively 
edit that. And I'll stand by it. Well, now let's head up to 2011 with your first gold record, which was England Keep My Bones. And I'm going to go with the track I Still Believe, which includes one of my favorite all-time lyrics from you. And that is, now who would have thought that after all, something as simple as rock and roll would save us all? Those are words that I live by as a person because rock and roll and music as a whole can be so powerful and so positive and it can bring together people who normally don't see eye to eye on anything and here they are singing the same lyrics together and they're on the same plane without getting too punny here with my question with the <laughs> ever-changing landscape of rock and roll do you still believe yeah i do um i mean first of all i would say that like i there have been people over the years who've not and I'm not saying they're not saying this about you at all, but like a sort of like um, the British music press in particular are quite keen on kind of irony and sarcasm. And they've sort of taken that lyric to be a little more po-faced than it's intended. There is a degree of playfulness to that lyric and playing with the kind of the sort of mashing up the imagery of like rock and roll and kind of religion. You know, yes, there's a, there's a degree of a nod and a wink in there. That's not to in any way step away from the meaning of the song because I do mean it, but like, you know, it's a song that's smiling rather than pointing your finger. Of course, um, yes. But uh, I wrote the song, and this is going to answer your question. I wrote that song um, kind of during a very, very strange tour I did in 2010 when I did an underground, arguably illegal tour of China. Um, wow. When I say illegal, I didn't have a visa. I didn't have a, a musician's visa. And it's partly because of my passport. My name is Francis. And when it's transliterates in Chinese characters, there's sort of enough of a difference there that hopefully no one was going to notice when the posters say Frank Turner. And indeed, the shows were in like squats and bunkers and like all these kind of super weird places. And none of them were really officially sanctioned. And as much as it, had, as it has liberated in recent years, China is still an authoritarian communist country. So, but I sort of got to know these two guys who, who are over there who book DIY squat tours of China. And they were like, do you want to do it? I was like, uh, sure. So um, I played a show in Hong Kong and then walked, which was still an independent territory at the time. And then walked over the border with a guitar case and then got picked up in a car and did this tour and it was crazy. But the thing about, and some of the shows were like dry as fuck. Like people had no idea what was going on. There was a huge language barrier and it was just like, hello. But some of them <laughs> were amazing. And I particularly the last few shows, Wuhan, Beijing and Shanghai, or Shanghai and Beijing, Wuhan, Shanghai, Beijing. Those shows were kind of like pretty unforgettable, let's say, because, you know, they were all in these kind of I think I'm not sure if all three of them were, but certainly two of them were in former nuclear bunkers that had been taken over by punks and were covered in graffiti. And like these other kind of local bands played before and the shows were jammed and like people were going crazy. And like what I distinctly remember was watching people from a very different culture who had a very different experience of culture broadly growing up. And like this idea that, you know, for, I grew up in a culture in which rock and roll's on TV adverts, do you know what I mean? And it's in, it's on the, stereo in grocery stores and it's just it's kind of humdrum it's day-to-day -day. it's not especially in and of itself a remarkable thing uh, which wasn't always true you know and like it's difficult to imagine yourself back to 1956 or whatever in rock around the clock or alternatively the 70s and new york and punk rock or whichever version of that or hip-hop or whichever place you want to put yourself in but there was something kind of like telescoped and concentrated about watching these kids and like they were playing these bands who like 
if they were from London, they would have been boring bands. They would like they had literally only just last week figured out that if you played this chord, followed by this chord, followed by this chord, and then hammer the crap out of your guitar and get the drummer to play everything way too fast and then yell over the top of it that it feels like you're on drugs and you're on a rocket ship taking off and crashing into a mountain and that people are going to want to sleep with you. And it's just fantastic. <laughs> and it was just like this, this utterly pure experience of what rock and roll is supposed to be. And it made me feel chastened to a degree because it was just like, it was, they were so cool and they were so pure in their appreciation for the art form that it made me feel kind of like a jaded old dickhead. Do you know what I mean? Like, 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 like that, like that guy, that guy in the dead Kennedy's patch jacket at the back of the show complaining that it's not as good as it was in the eighties or whatever. And it's just like, ah, whatever, man. And it kind of rekindled something in me. And I remember kind of coming home and thinking, I have to kind of, I have to pay that tribute in some way. I have to capture that in some way. Um, and, and hence the song, I still believe. And, you know, in telling that story, there's probably some of the vocabulary from the song is in there, you know, and, and it. But yeah, and I do think, you know, like there's something, particularly like in this sort of increasingly digitized, blah, 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 we're talking to each other on Zoom world. And also like after the lockdowns, when we all got very digital and the rest of it, and like there was something noticeable in its absence in that period of time. I did a lot of live streams, probably more than most, probably more than was required. <laughs> but, uh, and, and they were well, all well and good, but they, they very quickly pointed out what was missing, which is that there's nothing in my experience that beats a room full of people getting off on music that's being created there and then, you know? Um, and I think that that remains true. And particularly as it gets harder and harder to navigate how on earth you're supposed to be an artist, how you're supposed to navigate promotion and marketing and press and reviews and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know what you can do? I'm talking to younger bands all the time. It's like, you know what you can do? You can pick up a guitar and you can go and play a show. And, and it's, there's something old fashioned, but pure about it. And I like that. Amen. Well, for the last of my seven songs, I'd like to dip back into 2013's tape deck heart because we are in its 10 year anniversary sure. with the amazing track Four simple words. Huh. Did you have any idea you were writing your future set closing track and the reaction you would get every single time you play it? <laughs> I mean, again, it's kind of, I'd love to pretend I didn't, but kind of. That was a song that was born of a conversation um, with Brent, who's the bass player from Social Distortion. And we were on tour with Social D. We toured her with them in Europe and the States. States twice, actually. And the beautiful people, Mike Ness, wonderful guy, did great things for my career. But I remember, and Brent's a great dude, bass player, fantastic bass player. And I remember we were talking about, in fact, the, we'll go deep into this. The, the conversation started talking about the fact that nobody writes talking blues songs anymore. You know what I mean by talking blues? Like Bob, Bob Dylan has a few yep, and yep. Pilox and people like that. And then we had this idea that we were going to write a talking blues, talking blues, which is going to be a talking blues about the fact that nobody writes talking blues anymore. Um, and uh, it was going to be called the talking blues, talking blues. Um, I haven't got around to that yet. It's still on the to-do list. But um, then we were talking about vaudeville. Which is, a, and like the in the UK, the version of vaudeville we had was known as musical and it's this century plus long tradition of of music which is mostly forgotten now because it predates recording but you know and it's kind of it's slightly more sort of theatrical and fun in the way that they really love and um there are a handful of songs in in the uk that people know and most people don't know their musical songs my old band's the dustman any old iron um the hippopotamus song and they're kind of fun songs and it was like 
what if there was a punk rock vaudeville song? And in the same way that the Talking Blues song, Talking Blues, Talking Blues was kind of meta, a song about itself. Mm-hmm. I was like, what if there was a vaudeville song about going, listening to a song at a punk rock? And so the, the intro to that song kind of, be, it was sort of came together in my head as this like, because we're also 21st. And it's got this slightly kind of like, um, cabaret chord changes you yeah know? yeah and, uh, and i kind of got to the end you know i want to dance and i sort of had this almost like rocky horror kind of picture in my head and then i sort of got to the end of that intro and was like well that was that would be a cool way to start a show and then you play something else and it was like well, well no i mean maybe you know because it, like i'd written i wrote the song eulogy on on uh in cover bones which is a very short introductory song and i think initially it might have been another one of them and it was like maybe i don't need two of those in my repertoire and also well, there's, there's some more to this idea. Let's see where this goes. And, you know, let's make it a punk rock song. And I remember, I remember talking the band through like the chord changes and the arrangements and stuff. And sometimes when we work on a song, I have the chord changes and the lyrics and the melody and the arrangements kind of all to play for. It's like, let's experiment and see where this goes. Let's try a few different things. In the case of Paul's Words, it was like, this is how this song goes. Like, it's like everybody play power chords and do all downstrokes and just go, ah, and through the middle of it. <laughs> um, and uh, it's just, da, 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 and, and, uh, and, it, and I remember we played it for the first time in its finished form at a show in Graz in Austria in probably 2012. And we, again, sort of played it in the middle of a set, but in this instance, like nobody could possibly have heard it in any way so before. I remember kind of saying to everyone, right, this is a punk rock song and it's a song about being at a show and having a good time. So have a good time, you know, or dancing or whatever. And like, yeah, people went nuts and it was like, oh, okay, well that works. <laughs> and like more so than most of my songs, it's, it's instrumental, not in the sense of not having vocals, but as in it is kind of like it is, it's functional might be the word. It's like, this is a song in order to make a room full of people to like throw that pram in the air <laughs> or whatever. And it works nine times out of ten. So, um, yeah, but it's it's a fun song. I mean, like it's moved around the set a few times, but essentially, it's either the opening or the closer. It doesn't really fit anywhere else. Well, here we are. My songs of Frank Turner mixtape is sitting at seven tracks, but they've all been chosen by me. And why would I waste this amazing opportunity to have the man himself put his stamp on this mixtape? So, Frank, outside of the songs we've discussed tonight so far, if you had to choose three songs that you've recorded over the course of your career that you feel best tell the story of your musical legacy, what three songs would you choose and why? Well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to preface this by saying that I am ultimately, I'm fantastically the wrong person to ask this question because (laughs) the answer is either all of them or like, give me like two years to think about this. Point one. Uh... Also, like, I'm going to treat this as adding these to the list that you've already made, if that's okay, because otherwise I'll never, we'll never finish this conversation. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm also like, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, oh God, I don't know. Like, let's think about this. I mean, I might pick, um, I might pick this on the ballad of me and my friends because that song has done me well over the years. And it's kind of funny to me, that song now, because I wasn't kidding when I wrote it that I was like, Hey. What I'm doing isn't go fucking going anywhere and it doesn't matter because we are having a good time. And this is a period of my time when playing of 50 people was at like a bumper night. That would be at like a stadium headline night. 
And like I was, yeah, it wasn't kind of arch and it wasn't sarcastic that I wrote that said that. And I have played that song at, sta- at like stadiums and at arena headline shows and all the rest of it. And that's fucking hilarious to me. Um, <laughs> and like, and the people who that song was kind of written for and about and with, for example, my friend Jay, Beans on Toast, who is going to be here in about an hour. Like, it's got a place in all of our hearts. It's ours. Do you know what I mean? And like, that's pretty special. I like that. Uh, so that's one. Oh, Lord above. Um, <laughs> I'm going to pick, uh, going to pick the song Journey of the Magi from Poetry of the Deed. Um, the song took a long time to write and it was one of the first songs I wrote that wasn't straight autobiography. And that was kind of a breakthrough for me as a writer. And whilst I do still tend to write straight autobiography, there was something kind of like, and, and it was also kind of a moment in time where I kind of like, I, you know, I am a total book nerd and I got a pretty kind of classical education and all the rest. And I brought some of that to bear and it wasn't embarrassing or bad. And it was like, oh, cool. I can, I can also talk about this. I can say Ithaca in a song and no one's going to tell me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I've, I've got, I just, it sort of, that song does what it, I, it set out to do in a way that I'm pretty pleased with. And then I met, I'm largely picking my third one because I had a quite a meaningful conversation with an old friend of mine last night about it. Um, I saw an old friend. I, I, a lot of my career started at the spark called Nambuka, which is mentioned in Ballad of Me and My Friends, in which the, the lyrics to Only Proof Rock Before We Got Famous is basically a, a, about the bar stuff there in 2007. And indeed, the resurrectionists picked that up again on FTAC and all the rest. And, um, you know, it was a very, very formative time for me and a formative group of people. And without ever wanting to sound elitist or exclusionary, it is very much a case of like, if you were there, you were there kind of thing, you know? Um, and it was those of us who were meet up around the world because we've all scattered to the full winds and we have a drink and we reminisce and we think to ourselves, man, we were lucky, you know, um, an awful lot of crazy music came out of that place. But, uh, there's a song on FTAC called Untainted Love, which is a song about addiction and cocaine addiction. Um, and, uh, it was kind of a, I was one of those songs. I get these occasionally where I'm like, I'm half of the right. And I'm like, am I actually going to fucking do this? Am I going to say this out loud where other people can hear? Um, you know what I mean? Like, is this a good idea? But it was sort of slightly born of a conversation with my wife because she's not had that issue with that substance. And it was like, I remember saying to her, like, I think about Coke and I've, I've been clean for a number of years now, but like, I still think about it probably seven or eight times a day, I would say. Um, you know, and if you, every single bathroom I ever walk into, I slightly scan to see whether there's flat clean surfaces. And like, if you give me a hotel room key, I will go clack, clack, clack on a flat dry surface and it will make me, it's a little bit, a little bit buzzy. Um, and like people who know what I'm talking about, know what I'm talking about. Do you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. um, an old friend of mine was at the show last night who was part of the number scene and we did a fair amount of that together. And, um, he hadn't actually heard that song before. And we played it last night and he said, I really need to talk to you about that song, man, because it said it, you know, and, um, I miss the independence of being high as fucking friendless on days that were numb and endless. And I feel pretty good about those words. Cause it, again, it says what I meant to say, like, and arguably in quite a pure way, there's a writer called Clive James. He's one of my favorite writers and sadly passed a few years ago. Um, the expression be more kind is borrowed from one of his poems. And, and he talked, he writes at length about writing. He was a great essayist as well as a poet and cultural critic. And he writes about how writing is the lifelong attempt to do something which sounds simple, which is to say exactly what you mean. And it's actually the hardest thing to do in the whole world. And 
there, I would not for a second say that all of my songs achieve that benchmark, but that is one where I'm like, that is what I meant to say precisely and exactly. And I'm quite happy about that. Absolutely amazing. Well, Frank, I'd like to quickly pivot away from the studio and back onto the stage. This summer, you'll be hitting the road across the U.S. with one of my absolute favorite ska punk acts, The Interrupters. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about what fans can expect on this trek and if you have any surprises up your sleeves for the tour? Uh, you know, I'm, I mean, to some degree, I'm going to be finding out same time as everybody else. I mean, I love The Interrupters. They're great. I sort of passingly know a couple of them, but some of them I don't. Um, uh, they suggested the tour and I was really, really flattered by that. I was like the old me kind of thing. <laughs> like, um, but I mean, seriously, it was like, wow, really cool. Awesome. Amazing. And they've been wonderful to work with um, planning the tour. And I think everybody, I mean, it's been lovely how people are excited about that tour and, and so am I good Lord. Uh, and we're hitting some cool spots and we're going to play some cool shows. I suspect that as we go some kind of like some bleeding over of sets will take place. That's, that's certainly a thing that often happens with me. And I like that. That's good. Let's do that. But I mean, I think I, what, well, the other thing as well is that like music isn't a competition. It's bullshit to suggest that music is competition. It never was. It, and it, and, it, and it just isn't, um, you know, there's space enough for everybody. Like I wish every band to do well. Um, it's hard to do well. You know, I fucking hate the music of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I want them to succeed. I want them to play more shows and sell more records. Good for them. You know what I mean? And the only way in which competition comes in is a bit of friendly competition. And it, this is, sorry, I'm going around the house with this, but like there are some bands who like don't take out support acts they think are going to be good, which I think is the lamest thing ever, but it definitely happens in the industry. And there's nothing that fills me with more joy. Like right now we have a band called The Lottery Winners out with us and they're fucking incredible and you should check them out and everybody should check them out and like they are giving me a run for my money every night of this tour and i love it because it makes me go right come on man we've got to bring our a game do you know what i mean we've got to yes. push ourselves further yes. and i yes. feel like there's going to be a degree of that on the interrupters tour because they are a great live band as well as being a great band full stop and it's going to be like okay let's do this come on let's who's gonna Come on. And not in a kind of like, there's going to be a winner kind of way, but it's just, it's cool. You know, it's like, everybody's like, okay, top that motherfucker. It's yeah. like, let's see how we do. Well, the winners are the audience because every band is bringing their a game. And that exactly. to me means the world. And I love that you said that music's not a competition. I yeah. preach to the other indie podcasters and when I'm on social media, that podcasting is not a competition. We're all here because of our love and our support for whatever we're podcasting about. And that for me is music. Sure. And in 2018 and 2019, you released two albums in back-to-back -back years. That would be Be More Kind and No Man's Land. You mentioned it earlier, and I would not be a good podcaster if I didn't try to dig a little bit deeper into that. You said you're working on your follow-up to FTHC. Can we expect a new Frank Turner album in 2023? And if so, are there any details you'd be willing to share with me now? Um, there are details. It's not going to be this year. It's going to be next year. We're going to be recording this year. I'm in an interesting place in my career. I just finished a record deal, which no one ever does. Um, you know, bands tend to break up or get dropped before they do. Apparently 5% mm -hmm. of bands finish a major label record deal. I finished wow. my deal. Um, and. That puts me in a different kind of like business situation, which isn't very interesting, I know, but it means that it, it does sort of affect the kind of creative logistics of how, how I'm going to make this record and the ways I'm kind of excited about. I'm going to self-produce and record at my house, which I'm stoked about, 
which is probably a first for me, but I feel, and like I've consciously shied away from doing that in the past, but I feel like I'm ready to do it now. And I'm excited about that. We're going to be recording over the summer. Um, I have a new drummer in my band in the last three years, and this will be our first time recording with him. He didn't play on FDHC for various reasons. He wasn't fully in the band by that point when we were making it. Um, and, uh, you know, working with Callum on the record is going to be incredible. Yeah, I'm just, I, I'm, 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 I'm stoked. We're going to be working on it this summer. I think it'll be out early 2024. Well, Frank Turner, it's been an absolute honor to speak with you today. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you and the interrupters at the Stone Pony in New Jersey this May. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the music. And thank you for taking the time to be on my weekly mixtape with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And there you have it, mixtapers, the songs of Frank Turner. We kick things off with Recovery, The Next Storm, Haven't Been Doing So Well, Don't Worry, Photosynthesis, I Still Believe, Four Simple Words, The Ballad of Me and My Friends, Journey of the Magi, and Untainted Love. Remember, mixtapers, if you'd like to listen to all of the songs we talked about tonight, head over to myweeklymixtape.com visit the Songs of Frank Turner page and give these tracks a listen via the embedded playlist. You can find My Weekly Mixtape on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at My Weekly Mixtape. You can also head to myweeklymixtape.com to check out the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. If you want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and until next time... Enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.